0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts on the network, and today I spoke with Dr. Liora Sarfati of Tel Aviv University about her new book, Contemporary Korean Shamanism from Ritual to Digital, recently published with Indiana University Press. It was one of the most enlightening conversations I've had in a long time, as we discussed everything from the appropriateness of the term shamanism itself to the uh, uneasy relationship that vernacular cosmologies in Korea have with Christianity, which has become so prevalent in contemporary Korean society. It was from start to finish a really fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Thank uh, Dr. Sarfati, welcome to the program.
0: Hello, nice to be here.
1: Um, So first of all, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Before we get into the book, I always find that folklorists have the most interesting stories about how they came to the field. Dr. Safati, what is your folklore origin story?
0: Well, first I was born... That happens. Uh, but um, I was studying about Japan actually, and I was doing uh, Japanese studies and Buddhist studies. And then I got my first mediated shamanic ritual, a Korean shamanic ritual. It was in one of the classes about performance uh, studies and theater. And the professor just showed us a video of a Korean shaman on stage actually performing. And I was so fascinated. So I could say that the book itself that talks about mediation and and screen-mediated experiences of Korean shamanism is also my story. Because after I saw that, I was like, wow, this is something I really want to see in life. But I was studying Japanese, and in Israel, there was not much Korean studies at the time. And, well, now we have a bit. So I I got interested, and I I asked my uh, Buddhist studies scholar, Jacob Raz, who was kind of my mentor, uh, what he thinks about it. And he said, actually, if you want to study shamanism, you have to go to Korea because it's Japan. in Japan it's, it's not so popular as it is. So I started looking for a place to study Korean and uh, Korean uh, vernacular religions. And it got me to Indiana University, to the folklore department, with my wonderful advisor, Professor uh, Roger Janelli, who studied a different kind of vernacular um, rituals, ancestor worship. And and that was the story. So, so actually for me, I think this mediation, the, the fact that you can watch something on the screen and get so attracted to it was a core experience that led me into actual real-life shamanic ritual, which is of course much better, but still.
1: But still sort of one of the things that we we come to these to so many traditions now via via different forms of media and i think that's what makes this book so interesting um so you your own story starts with sort of this media version of a uh, shaman of a korean uh, musok ritual um how did you come to write this book i mean what, what was the work that was involved and what was the process
0: So first, well, so the story goes on. I went to Indiana. I studied Korean language. I studied about Korea. I had no knowledge about Korean culture and modern culture. And I did some fieldwork in Korea and preliminary fieldwork. And then I stayed there for my PhD dissertation research a bit more than a year. And I met many uh, practitioners of vernacular religion. And they they actually do this stuff, you know, they communicate with the spirits and with the gods. And they deliver blessings and they deliver healing um, processes, I would say, because, you know, it's never magical. It takes a long time to heal through shamanic healing and it takes some time to to understand it. So I I went to all these rituals and met these people. I find them, I would say, I find them very wonderful people who really help people in need in Korea. But I also learned that they are very controversial in Korea, and of course Christians don't like them in Korea, but also ordinary people fear them, and there's some stigma on every practitioner of spirit mediation. So I kind of delved into it and wrote my PhD dissertation about how these rituals are are produced, and a lot about the material culture. And then when I started writing the book, I I didn't want to do it like an elaboration of my dissertation. Some parts are in the book. But then as, as much as I stayed in Korea and spoke to people, I saw that really many, many people know a lot about shamans because they watch them on television and in films and in museums. So it got to me that the book has to talk about that, about how the public gets to know Korean shamans, not through real-life encounters, but all kind of mediated encounters. And, and that's how the, the book came about. So I conducted extra research on films and television series and the Internet and screen mediations and, and wrote the chapters.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, so, so far in our discussion, you've been using this term Korean shamanism. Or Korean shamans, um, but it's a it's a term that in the introduction of the book you problematize and you sort of say that this is maybe not an appropriate term, and you avoid using it for most uh for most of the or for all of the book. Uh, can you tell tell us a little bit about uh, this sort of uh, about Korean musok? Uh, As you use, uh, probably that's the incorrect pronunciation, but how you, uh, that's the term you're using in the book, and also about its place in sort of Korean society, both traditionally and today.
0: Yes, this is always a problem when you write a book that's not for local audiences. If you put in the title, the local term, then people don't really don't know, you know, occasional readers, they don't know what to expect. So I actually put the word Korean Shamanism in the title. It wasn't in the original title but people that are much more experienced than me said, you know, if you don't put it there, people don't know what you're talking about. And that's, that's the case about in, in many other kinds of books of, that my friends have written. For example, a book called The Shaman Wages. It's about uh, economics of shamanism in Korea, but again, the, shaman, the word shaman is in the title and, and there's always, you know, this kind of discrepancy between shaman and what Korean spirit mediators do. So that's why I put it in the title for the general audience, but then I kind of jump out of this term. I don't like to use it because it's too generalizing because shamanism is used all over the world. So, for example, the first thing that people ask me about Korean shamanism is, so what substances do they use to go into altered state of consciousness? Because they know that, uh, for example, Central American um, shamans or uh, curanderos in, Me- in Mexico, they use all kinds of substances, but in Korea, they don't, for example. So that's one of the generalizations that the public really knows about, that some shamans use substances. And then I have to start saying, yes, but Korean shamans don't use substances. So that's one thing. And many, many other kind of assumptions that people have when you say shamanism. So, so that's why I like to, you know, not use this term as much when I go deeper, into it, and you asked about the term Bu Sok. So, Mu so is the mediator or mediation, the Mu, the beginning of the term Bu Sok. And Sok would be like a practice or tradition. So, it's the tradition of, of mediation uh, between humans and the supernatural. So, that would be the, the term. And also, the person that does it can be called Mu Dang. Again, the same Mu, and Dang would mean, well, some people translate it as like a shrine or a place where this mediation happened. So that's another interesting term that I use. And also I use the term Man Shin, which is the most appropriate for the people that I discuss because Man is 10,000 and Shin is spirits or gods of natural elements and then man sheens would mean 10,000 spirits and that's the most appropriate term i think for the specific practitioners that i meet who are people who get into possession trance like altered states of consciousness and then they invite the spirits and to, the gods to possess them they actually come into their body that's the belief system and then while these supernatural entities are embodied within the practitioner Then people can ask them questions, for example, what will happen next year? So they do divination, they predict the future, or why is my daughter sick? They can say, you know, you have an ancestor spirit that is very unhappy with you because you didn't visit her grave. So that's kind of a response that the the, the mansion, the shaman gives a client when they ask, What's the problem? What's causing my problem? And the problem can be health issues, misfortunes, like all kind of uh, a house got burned down. Somebody died in a car crash. Many, many kind of these bad events happen to one family. So then they would have the suspicion that some kind of either local spirit of their house or something is upset. And many times it's an ancestor that is displeased with the attention that the, the siblings uh, or the, the living op- offspring are giving. In Korea, there is a lot of attention to ancestor worship. They are supposed to go to the grave. They are supposed to give all kinds of uh, feasts in certain dates. And in contemporary lifestyle, most Koreans cannot, you know, keep up with all the demands that ancestor worship entails. So when something happens, oftentimes the the mansion will say, you know, there's some neglected ancestor that's trying to draw your attention through all these misfortunes. Uh, And that's why I like to use these terms because they are very specific to what I'm exploring. Uh, Even in Korea, there are shamans that don't um, use possession trance technique. They're just kind of priests who pray and ask for favors from supernatural entities. Uh, But the mansion I work with, they really do um, communicate with these entities. So so that's the unique aspect. And and that's why if I use shamanism or even mudang, which is a Korean term, I might get confused with other kinds of people who try to communicate with supernatural but not directly. So, you know... For them, it's very crucial that you understand exactly what they do, and I try to respect that.
1: Absolutely, for us, I think it's also very crucial to sort of unpack these these terminologies. I think as a, as folklorists, it's it's important to meet these cultures on their terms where it's possible, even if even if the title needs to use the word shamanism. Um, so, uh, what is uh, I, there's this great statistic in here where you say that there are some 200,000, you estimate or you accept an estimate that there are some 200,000 practitioners of various sorts throughout South Korea. And uh, I mean, that seems like a huge number to me. It certainly seems like this is not an endangered or threatened practice in any way. Um, Can you give a, give a sense of sort of maybe the, maybe the historical context and maybe it's it's recent it's more recent growth in 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 the recent in the last few decades
0: Yeah, you know, when I came to the field, all I was reading and hearing, even from my Korean friends and colleagues, is that the Korean busok is dying out. And, you know, we are kind of doing salvage folklore research, you know, where we we will record the last existing banshee And and then it will probably die out because of modernity or hyper-modernity or however you term it. And then I get to Korea and on every place, wherever you go, if you know where to go, where there is a rental shrine, there will be like four or five rituals at the same time at any given moment, especially on the weekends. So I was like a bit perplexed about it. And especially it depends what you read, because the research from the 80s, like the 20th century, they were really ro- worried about it. It it was really kind of a central concern for them that that mansion are not going to, survive this urbanization and, and all these changes that uh, south korea has underga- undergone in the past let's say 40 50 years and then suddenly you come to the 21st century and it's not dying out at all actually it's it's on the rise i would think so i i don't use this terminology of you know this uh, this is an endangered tradition because it's not relevant to this specific case and it's actually very interesting that the hereditary uh, mudang, the practitioners who do not get into possession trance and learned the practices of song and dance in the family, this is dying out. This tradition is dying out because children who are born to mudang, they don't want to be this kind of practitioners because it has the stigma and, you know, now they can do many other things because they can move to the cities and, and work in other, in other more uh, rewarding jobs. But on the other side, at the same time, you still continue to have these younger and older people who get what they believe is a calling. So they are they dream about the spirits, and they feel sick, and they behave like what is usually diagnosed as mental sickness by the modern uh, health system but they cannot be cured, so usually they are under medication, go to psychiatric ward, because they say that they hear voices in their head, and they have run away from home and go to the mountains. Sometimes they are violent. And then this continues happening in contemporary Korea. And then sometimes they would have a Christian parent who would take them to a Christian camp to teach them that it's all the devil and they have to be good Christians, but it doesn't, it doesn't end. And some of them have other issues that are uh, unfortunately diagnosed as mental illness in South Korea. In some places, for example, homosexuality in some parts of society is still perceived as a mental illness. So some of these people are also tagged as that because they behave in a transgender manner. For example, a man wants to dress as a woman. So people think that's a mental illness because there is also very little flexibility with LGBT issues. Right now in South Korea, so all these eventually happen sometimes to come to a practitioner, to a manchin, and and a grandmother, a mother. Usually, the women in the family would suggest that as a last resort after all the modern medicine and Christian therapy, nothing helped. So many times I meet in um, in manchin's home, a young apprentices who say, "You know, I've been ten years treated so badly by by all these modern institutions." And then I came to the mansion and she said, you know, all these things are very simple. The spirits want you to be a mansion. So if you don't accept the calling, you know, who knows what's going to happen? They're going to keep harassing you because they chose you. And that's the way people become mansion. So, for example, if it's a man who dresses as a woman, uh, then the mansion can say, you know, your, your main possessing spirit, she's female. And she really wants to feel how it is to wear a dress because now she's a spirit. You can't wear dresses anymore, Uh, but if she comes into your body and possesses you, and you're wearing a dress, she's very happy. So there's no point in avoiding, you know, this kind of behavior. But other people that are not manchin have never legitimized that behavior, right? Or if it's a woman who wants to smoke cigarettes in public and speak to men. And uh, yeah, I don't, you know, all kinds of things that are not very common in Korean society. It's becoming more common now, but for people who are now hmm, in their forties or fifties, there are still kind of social restrictions on how women should behave in society. So women who are very outgoing in kind of a manly manner in Korean standards, they can get that from a mansion too. You know, you are being possessed by a male spirit, and he wants to talk to these man in this way, rude way that you're talking. So, so that's kind of an explanation that the, the new practitioner, the novices, they are very, um, I wouldn't say happy, because it's not good news to learn that you're destined to be a mansion. It's very hard life, and the spirits sometimes control you, and your life changes. But at least it legitimizes all kinds of behaviors that have been so... Um, marginalized and criticized by by their surrounding people. So, so that's usually how people become Manchin after many years of enduring all kinds of other treatments in contemporary society. I would suspect that in traditional society it was simpler because they would go to Manchin before. There wouldn't be so many options of, you know, mental institutions and all these kind of ordeals that they undergo now. So in that case, modernity is not helping them, but they're still there and full on, you know, there are so many of them. So I I don't see it diminishing. Now about the number, you mentioned the 200,000 practitioner, that's an estimate of a Korean scholar. Um, They have an association, they have a few association that are kind of uh, professional associations. And one of them has around 300,000 people as members. Of the professional association but not all of them are a uh, full practitioner some of them are novices some of them might be practitioners not of musok exactly maybe something like divination so that's why i think two hundred thousand makes makes sense and, and many people are not registered of course uh, that
1: too i mean that's really fascinating um especially to hear how how Vital and how vibrant the tradition still manages to be, and maybe we'll have a chance later to also discuss sort of the the discourses of endangerment that that seem to to surround the tradition as well. Um, before before we get to those, though, uh, one thing I was I was curious about uh, is sort of the you sort of started talking about this, but I mean, you mentioned Christianity a lot, and Christianity does seem to be very, very popular in South Korea, to my understanding. But also, you point out that there is this persistence of these vernacular cosmologies more broadly, and of the mansion practice, uh, specifically, and that Christians will also use these services. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the place of these vernacular cosmologies in, in contemporary Korea.
0: Yes, it, it's quite interesting the encounter of these uh, vernacular religions with Christianity, because in Korea, in pre-modern Korea, there were no Christians probably until the eighteenth century. There were none at all, and and shamanism also had encounters with Buddhism and with Confucian scholars. So not everybody in Korea were happy with shamans in pre-modern time, but. There was no demand for any person to be a singular practitioner of one specific uh, tradition. So that's something that came in with Christianity, the monotheism, the monotheistic view that if you're a Christian, you can't be anything else, right? Because somebody who goes to a shaman when, he, when the, uh, somebody in the family is sick, there's no problem if they also go to a Buddhist shrine and do whatever they want anywhere, <laughs> So there is no demand for um, uh, specific devotion to one particular religion. And then comes Christianity, and they don't accept it. So in the beginning, some of the shamans said, well, Jesus, that's nice. He was a person, so he has a spirit, and we can worship him as an ancestor. There's no problem there. So shamans don't have a problem with Christianity. But the Christians, for them, that was, of course, terrible, obscene, and how can you even include Jesus Christ is one of your worshiped entities. And we hear some report about it, about shamans in the 19th century just incorporating um, Jesus into their pantheon like they did with Buddha and Confucius and anybody else who came along, you know, into their uh, perception as as a religious person. They don't have any distinction between this or that spirit. I I know a shaman that worships Jinjis Khan, for example, there's no problem there worshiping. Even Hideyoshi, who is a Japanese samurai who Koreans really hate. But one of the male shamans I I work with, he worships Hideyoshi because he comes to him in dreams and demands worship. So there's no problem giving him some rice and drinks, you know. That's why Jesus Christ was not an issue for the shaman, but vice versa, of course, Christians would not accept it. So in the 19th century, they burned shrines, and they tried to ban it, and they worked with the Confucian scholars who didn't like these crazy women. And and Korean mansion, they're mainly female, probably 80%. So so there's a gender issue. The scholars are mostly male and the the Manchins are women, and they tell them what they have to do, and they tell them that the spirits are angry. So that was something that Korean Confucian scholars really liked in pre-modern time, and they don't like it these days either. But you can see politicians going to visit Manshin. I see them in their homes. I participated in a ritual for a presidency candidate in 2008, or was it 2007, the end of 2007? It was just before the elections. But it cannot be, for example, a candidate who is a professed Christian. Cause that won't work. So, so Christianity brought this division in society. I think I talked about it a lot because one of the mansion I'm interviewing via Zoom recently, she had this Christian background and, and she thinks that her grandmother was supposed to be a Manchin, but being a Catholic, she, she wasn't allowed. So she behaved very strangely and, and the community kind of uh, disliked her grandmother and of course, nobody likes her because she's a professed She now, but she thinks that it runs in her family. And, and she's, she she was born and raised Christian, so it was a big issue. And I think that's why I'm talking about it, because I'm talking with her and she tells me about her hardship with her family, with her father, who would not talk to her since she became a mansion.
1: Well, I mean, I think this is all like really fantastic sort of background for the book. And I think... Um, and and. For for listeners uh, of our podcast who maybe don't have that really strong uh, grounding in contemporary South Korea, I think that this has been really fantastic. At the same time, this book is ultimately about sort of how these, is about representations of uh, these manshin and of musok practice in Different media, right? Uh, and it's a term. So you use the term reperformance, and I'm wondering if you can, as we transition into talking about these different media, what is reperformance, and how do you distinguish it from terms that might seem relevant to folkloristic audiences, uh, terms like Richard Bauman's remediation, for example.
0: Yes, I don't think it's really contradictory, but I would say that when you re-perform something, you take something that was a performance. So first of all, you begin with a performance, and when you remediate, it doesn't necessarily have to be a particular performance. It can be a perception. It's broader in a sense from what I'm I'm talking about, a specific performance. There was a performance. And re-performance usually has been taken from performance studies in the theater realm. So for example, if there was a very famous theater, something or performance art, I don't know, Marina Abramovich cut her, (laughs) I don't know, did something very uh, radical, in, in cut her hair in a museum stage, and now artists, like 20 years later, they want to do the same performance and actually, theater is all re-performances, right? Because they take a play and they perform it. But, but re-performance usually has been discussed as a particular performance, very usually famous one, that is being re-enacted, I would say, in another context. So in my first chapter of the book, I talk about the re-performance of a traditional ritual that used to be performed usually in a village for for several days, and when people reperform, there are many changes that happen. So then the remediation happens, right? Because they have to do the choices, how to reperform something that they cannot perform in the, the way it used to be. So when I talk about a stage performance, which in Korea would mean that somebody ordered a shaman to perform for two, five, six hours on stage and they would perform a ritual that in the past used to take probably several days used to be without any technical enhancements such as light sound system etc it used to be performed in front of audience that was usually local audience that knew each other now you get in this new stage setting you get audience that is from all over the place. They don't know each other. The shaman doesn't know, or the mansion, they don't, they don't know the audience. They can't interact with them because they're on stage and the people are usually kind of remote from them physically. Because, because usually Musaq was performed really like a kind of village ritual that you would imagine. The, the mansion are in the middle and people are around them and there is discussion. Now these performance still happen, not in villages, but in Seoul, in the city. Uh, you would have shrines where people would come and order a ritual and they would interact with the mansion and everybody would know each other. But this is not the one I'm talking about in the first chapter. So when I talk about reperformance, I'm saying there is this kind of private performances and now they're taking it on stage. And the stage that I talk about, because I did like a thick description of one particular ritual to kind of bring out all the themes that I'm discussing, but, but other performances that I've watched could be in the National Theater or, or in, a, in a very big place like a, a soccer stadium in the World Cup, for example, in 2002. So, so there are all kinds of reperformances of village rituals, and they're very interesting for me. So I, I don't think it really contradicts remediation. I think remediation happens throughout this reperformance. But the re-performance is kind of the new performance that is <laughs> re-perform. Well, it's very hard. It, it becomes, you know, re- redundant with the word performance. Um, I don't know. Did it make sense? Did it explain?
1: Absolutely. I think so. And and I think, yeah. So, I mean, it's and it's also something that's maybe not limited to changes in media uh, in, in, in a sense of moving from something that is orally performed and limited by who can, who can physically be present, which would be something you'd have at the stage, for example, even if the audiences are larger and more distant than before. So, I mean, it is, I mean, and remediation would imply something like changing between something that is oral to written or oral to, uh, to, audio recording or, or things like that. So, so I I can see, I see the point. So um, that's really good. Um, And, and so since, since you've brought up chapter one, it's sort of looking at the stage performing of rituals and it, and, and it does with this thick description, give the sense of this real sort of aestheticization of, of a ritual practice. As, as you said, something that was, that would take days has now been condensed into a few hours and, has been changed to uh, with, with fancy lights and all sorts of displays to to sort of uh, keep attention of audiences, right? I mean, it makes me think of uh, Dory Noyes' idea of aesthetic as the opposite of anesthetic, right? Um, where you have to work to keep the audience's attention. Um, and so can you describe in In that chapter, you really do this thick description of this one performance and you sort of set it up. but um, I, I'm wondering if you can talk maybe go into a little bit more detail about uh, this ritual that you that you take on in in this chapter or that you describe in this chapter and how it and and maybe go into a little bit more detail how it differs from a traditional one and how um, how audiences and practitioners respond to these.
0: <laughs> that's a big question. But let, let's begin with how it begins, right? A normal ritual in a village, or even if it was a ritual ordered by, let's say, the queen for the blessing of the state for the new year. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be a big ritual in pre-modern time too. But now, how, how was this designed? How, how did people decide to have this ritual? So, for example, in the ritual I, I used in the book, there was a folk tradition festival It was a new kind of festival in Seoul. So it was something that the municipality and the Ministry of Tourism devised as a a kind of general happening for like three, four days, where all kind of traditional performances will be. So they call a Korean scholar of shamanism or of busok, Yang jun who who happened to be my local... um, a PhD advisor when I did my field work. So actually, that in that case, I was with him in the office of the museum. He was the senior curator of the National Folk Museum. And, and the phone call came in that we are going to do this folk uh, tradition ritual. And we're debating if we should include Korean shamanism because it's not exactly, you know... A, folk tradition that is just a performance and it's religious. And he says, oh, no problem. My shamans, they can do it and they can, can they frame it for a short performance? You know, we can't have them do it for the. Of course they can. And, and they're starting to mediate already, right? They're starting to turn the medium from a kind of religious performance that was ordered by somebody for a specific purpose into something that is going to showcase the tradition and the aesthetic aspect of it. So they tell him, and, and will you help us choose a performer? You know them. And we want it to be something very beautiful, like you said. You know, it has to be on television. So we really want somebody who can sing and dance. So suddenly they are not interested if, if she can heal or bless. They're interested if, if she's, she's going to appear nicely on television. That, that would be one of the concerns. So he helped them choose three separate performances, each for each night. And and he chose them by these criteria. And he's a person who knows many practitioners and and he could say, and we debated it because I was there. So I was very lucky to happen to be there and and kind of follow the process. So it begins with how how this ritual came to be because shamans perform their own rituals on mountains, in their home shrine, but not these big rituals that we talk about. These ones are usually ordered by clients for specific purposes. So I, I want my family to be blessed because we're moving to a new house. Can you come and bless my new house? Or we have this problem in the family. We have to kind of discuss it with the spirits or all kinds of rituals. But this one suddenly is a general ritual. It cannot have a very specific goal because, you know, it's going to be short and all. So he's starting to discuss it with the shamans on the phone. So, are you free on this and this date? And you know, of course, she's going to cancel everything to be in this festival when she's offered. It's a lot of money too, because they're going to pay. I mean, she's paid when she does private rituals, but for for the mansion, it's a big publicity opportunity, and they are always looking to publicize themselves and get more clients. So, of course, they are starting to debate. It's going to be maybe four hours or five hours. Can you do it? Which kind of rituals do you suggest? Because they have a repertoire. They have all kinds of blessing rituals they can do. And then they would discuss things like, are we going to include animal sacrifice or not, for example? So that's a question, right? Animal sacrifice is not very aesthetically presented as a Korean tradition for tourists. It might be a problem. So, of course, in this ritual, there was no animal sacrifice. Or not not a very big one. There was some animals on the side, but nobody did a big animal sacrifice act on stage. So all these are part of the re-performance. And then come the audience. So the audience also, they are not related to the shaman. They don't know her. Some of them come out of curiosity because they've seen the ad. Uh, Some of them came to see the the boys' band that was supposed to play later and just jumped into this stage to to pass the time before the boy band goes on stage. And that was interesting too because the government wanted to attract many young people so they also brought a very famous boy band to perform towards the end. And the boy band, of course, they played some traditional tools and, and they did their role but they're not really folk performers. But their name was a big name for the posters. So this is the reperformance. how I see it. It's, it's a very complex political mediated, screen mediated performance, and it's planned as such. So that's what fascinated me. And I didn't expect it when I came to Korea. I was kind of thinking, oh, this shaman, they're outcasts and it's dying out. And I'm gonna to go to some villages and see some old women doing it with some old clients. But oh, here were all the young people, and they were cheering and whistling and doing all these kind of uh, non-religious uh, respond, responses. And the, and the mansion, she was so responsive too, and she was joking with them and 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 you know, kind of. Uh, Making them enthusiastic, and she's a rock star. Actually, this particular one, So Kyung Guk. she's really she's beautiful. She knows how to dance and sing, and she knows how to give the show and communicate with young people, although she's in her sixties. So, yeah, these very performances are really fascinating, and and the fact that Manchin do it so nicely, and they don't seem to have effort. She was so happy to be on the stage; she was born for that. And, And it's not that like people would say. So, how did shamanism adapt? the modern situation. Oh no, it didn't adapt for them. Give them the crowd. Let the, the, the cameras roll. They're performers, you know, <laughs> they're not, they're not shy. So, so that was fascinating to watch.
1: So one thing that you just mentioned in there that, that sort of caught my attention was this idea of the, the performers needing to uh, get the publicity yeah, because also elsewhere in the book, you talk about the celebrification of mansion of Manxin. and so can can you talk a little bit more about how that works and how it is perceived by uh, with both within the mansion community if somebody is a celebrity versus i mean does that affect perceptions of authenticity for example like ooh, and and what are the processes of celebrification for these people
0: yes so the reason I got to know this celebrity mansion is mainly because I was looking for the people that are in the media. So I did work with the mansion that are not famous. I had a neighbor mansion that was very poor and unfamous, non-famous, but they are not in the book so much because this book specifically talks about people that are in the front of this practice. So they would be usually celebrity practitioners. And when I read about it, before I went to the field... People who wrote in the 90s usually about this—they uh, call it kunmudan, big shaman, but they mean media celebrity shaman. So there was a lot of criticism by the scholars, mm. and these were scholars who happened to know Manchin in the villages and started watching them transform into these media celebrities. And I got the image that they are not authentic like some people call them phony shamans, some people call them uh, or, or criticize them for not being uh, dedicated enough to the practice because they kind of chase the photographers, they used to say, and, and this kind of terminology. But then for me, when I went to see at least the people I worked with, and again, if it's 200,000 and I work maybe with 10, so <laughs> I can't generalize completely, but the people I work with who are very central in the field in Korea, and in the, the musok world, they seem to me very dedicated to their kind of more traditional, I would say, if we can use this you know problematic word, but let's say more expected, authentic roles as healers and diviners, because all these media celebrities, what they do most of the day, when I just sit with them and we prepare for the ritual, they mostly take calls from people in prob- with problems, and any problem that people would call, they would take the call 24-7. That's how they advertise it in the website. Usually they would put the numbers 24-7, like we respond to your phone. And they would respond to their phone on their own, which kind of surprised me. Like if an assistant would answer the phone because she was not close to the phone, then she would just pass it to the mansion. So they were not like these big people that people take the calls for them. They're really on the phone all day. That's the way they first meet the clients, And also they are always... Uh, there for the clients who already met them and want to kind of recap or consult them and they are constantly doing that and then they meet the people usually for an hour or two and have kind of private consultation with them and then when they get this mediated uh, event it would be once a month it would be once a year depends how how big they are and how much money the government has that year. So it's not that they are constantly doing these uh, public stage performance. Most of the time they work with individuals. I haven't seen any of these big uh, celebrities rejecting people. Some of them even do this kind of um, pro bono rituals, I would call them, because rituals cost a lot. You know, one ritual can cost like 20,000 US dollars, even more. I mean, that's not an expensive one. That's a plain one. So, for example, one of these big practitioners who is a media celebrity uh, government-designated human treasure, she does once a year a ritual. She holds a ritual in which any of her clients who come for private consultation can join in for, let's say, something like 500 euros or 500 US dollars or 1,000, which is nothing compared to a big ritual. So she will gather maybe 30 of the clients, or even more, and she will do for all the ancestors of everyone a ritual, so everybody that has a problem with an ancestor. And she's really exhausted after that, because she actually has to, to get possessed by each and every one of the ancestors, and the trays are like instead of having one rice ball and one piece of cloth for the ancestors, like a huge table with the line with all the ancestors' outfits and food and their names. So she writes in calligraphy the names. And she does it on, the, on her own. And she does it because she says, you know, that her clients don't always have the money, but the spirits have to be appeased. So she, she wouldn't be this greedy type of mansion that sometimes in Korea, the public thinks, oh, these media celebrities, they just go for the money. And, and I wouldn't say she wouldn't charge, but she would give this option that is more reasonable for the people who can't afford it. And she would take their calls personally 24-7. And she would be sitting with me, which I'm kind of a foreign scholar that in some other expectation. People would say, well, if she has an appointment with you, she would sit with you for one hour. But no, she can, after 20 minutes, she can say, well, if you want to stay, you can stay. But some, somebody called with something very urgent, I have to get her. It will take me at least half an hour. Do you want to stay? Or do you want to come another day? And she'll do that. And, and she might upset me. I, I don't get upset because I'm used to it. <laughs> or she'll call and cancel one minute before I leave my house. And she said, you know, something came up. I have to go to the mountain to see somebody who is really in pain. And, and, and that would be her lifestyle. So they don't see themselves as, as like prima donnas, you know, who go on stage. And for them, the way they see, the way they view their publicity is that if they have the option or the means to help people who are suffering... And that's their terminology, they use Buddhist terminology. If people are suffering, we have to help them. And if by going on television more people know that I can help them, and more people will come to me so that I can help them, then that's my work. That's my calling, and that's what I do. So so when I whenever I interview them about this media activity, they would say that. That's the way to get the the, the possibility of shamanic healing. And, and you know, it can be physical healing or mental healing or family healing or village healing or workplace, uh, relationship healing. It doesn't matter which kind of healing. But, but they would say that we want to help people who suffer. They call themselves Bodhi, Posal, posal is Bodhisattva in, in the common terminology. So that's a Buddhist term for somebody who wants to help people who are suffering. How to ease their suffering is, is kind of their life goal. And that's all the people I interview. Again, I didn't interview 200,000. Munchin. Some of them might be very mean, greedy person, <laughs> but I haven't met them. I honestly haven't met anybody who was not honest. And every one of them that I followed for several days was doing it all the time, answering the phone, talking with people very sincerely, crying while they, while they talk with people because they have such empathy for their clients and, and they, they take the suffering of the clients on themselves. That's my experience. If you watch Korean media, you hear other stuff too.
1: Okay, well, that that's a really good way to transition into another medium. Uh, so in the next in the next chapter, you you look at the changing image of Musok in films, and so I'm curious uh, since since you've sort of suggested that at least in some media there is a um, there is a discourse of some greedy mansion and things like this. Um, Can you, yeah. What is the, what is the changing image of Musou in films and how, and maybe how has this shaped audience perceptions of mansion?
0: So yes, first of all, in contemporary film, you will find this evil, greedy manchin usually. You would find it not as a central figure. It won't be the, protag- the main protagonist, but when you suddenly you, you have a glimpse of a manchin, sometimes it would be somebody who is, co- uh, you know, taking money for nothing or exploiting people, and that you would see in contemporary media too. But in the 70s, for example, in 60s, when the manchin were the main protagonist, they were also evil. And this I never found in contemporary films. In contemporary films, when you have the main protagonist, a Manchin, then there would be the good people. Even there is, well, I don't want to give a spoiler, but there is, let's not say the name of the film, but there is a very famous film recently about the murder, and the the male Manchin is very spooky, and you always think that he's the murderer, but eventually, in the end, he's the good person. More or less, if I can say that without being too much spoiling for people who might watch. So, you get these, you don't get this main protagonist, Manchin, who is evil. But if you go to the 60s or 70s, oh my God, they are like, in, in one of the films that I discussed, it's called Iodo, Iodo Island. It's by uh, Kim ki yong he's a very famous uh, Korean. Uh, uh, pr- uh, film producer and director from the 70s, so the mansion is so evil, she's like, she brings out a body of a dead man from the ocean and she kind of forces the woman to have sexual intercourse with the body, all kind of really, really weird stuff, and and she's a mean person, and she, she's cunning, and she's you can't trust her, and of course she's not this person who tries to appease people's suffering like, she causes more harm than help. So that's what you find in the 70s and 60s. And then suddenly, in, in, in the 21st century, you find them like a cute lady, a cute lady that had to become a manchin because she really has to help people. And then you get this gangster guy in the movie Gangster Shaman who is a gangster and he's a mean guy, but when he becomes a manchin because he killed somebody and the spirit is haunting him. When he becomes a mansion, he suddenly helps people while he was the gangster before. So the mansion suddenly transformed from an evil person in films to a a kind of a good thing that can happen to somebody. And that's really surprising in Korean culture.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, Towards the end of the chapter, you start discussing documentary films. So it seems like the the examples that you've given so far are primarily from more... uh, narrative films sort of uh box office films but then you you start looking at these narrative films uh, and you talk about how they reflect the subjective takes of their directors and i imagine that this is probably similarly true in chapter three where it turns the focus to museums Uh, i'm wondering if we can talk about maybe both of these sort of the the documentary filmmakers, but then also uh, museum curators. How do they portray Korean shamanism and to what ends?
0: Yes, so first we have to look at changing like larger macro changes that happen in mediums, right? Because for example, in films, in documentary films, the voice of the filmmaker became more prominent in in general, not just in Korean uh, musok films. So so it makes sense that in the musok they will tell about the, how they met the and how they introduced them. And, and also the fact that they give the mansion a central stage is also kind of a, a change in the genre itself. The, the protagonists, even artists nowadays, they are not the people that are filmed from the, from far away doing something and then some commentator says what they are doing. Nowadays, it's very common that people talk about their activity. So Manchin are part of that. We, we can't look at it as a singular uh, exceptional uh, phenomenon. It, it's part of the genre change of documentaries. But in Korea, giving the Manchin voice has a political meaning not in political, you know, big politics, but it has a meaning of, it gives them power. So the the Manchin, they talk about the practice, they're interviewed, um, and in the most extreme case that I discussed is the film Manchin, 10,000 Spirits, um, is a film from 2015, a documentary. The Manchin herself, is portrayed as a kind of director in the film. So the filmmaker films her looking at people performing and kind of giving her criticism because he does kind of docker drama. So if there's an actress that portrays this manshin when she was a child, so suddenly you would see the drama happening and it looks like a Korean drama, but then suddenly the, the director shows the manchin, the old woman, she's more than 80 now, watching this actress portray her as a child and kind of giving comments to the, you know, to the cameraman. Oh, you know, do that. So suddenly she's the director and she decides how to show cast her life, her biography. So that really gives them power. And that's what I liked. It is less so in museums. So I couldn't say that museums really give voice to the mansion. I haven't heard of a museum that let a mansion design the museum exhibit. But some of the museum curators, like Professor Yang that I mentioned before, they are very knowledgeable, and they really know Manshin. And in his case, he was almost ordained as a Manshin himself, so he really knows it from from in and out. And then they can actually bring out, you know, musok to life in the exhibit if they are allowed to. But that becomes like a more institutional issue, because some museums don't like to showcast musok in the center, or some of them try to show it as an extinct tradition, for example, by by putting labels that say, musok used to be prominent in the 19th century, and and go on and, and not talk about it as something that happens now. And in this way, museums can distort history and culture representation and you can see it very extensively done in the case of musok so you can actually almost predict if the museum director or the the chairman or whoever is in charge or the the general manager if they are christians or not i would say
1: so so that uh, from what i'm hearing the the portrayal is then very closely linked to Christianity, so there's there's sort of maybe a vested interest in portraying uh, musul as sort of an extinct practice. If if the directors I are think Christian,
0: so. well, I know some cases personally, so I can say yes. When the director changed in some museums that I worked for, let's say, 10 years, when the directors changed, suddenly they gave orders to marginalize also exhibits in the same museum and and things like that that I actually followed closely. And I was asked not to write about it in the book in detail because it was too recent and too political. (laughs) But yes, you could say that not just the curators who is the expert on shamans can do the... Uh, the decision can make the decision in Korean culture. It's a very institutionalized culture and hierarchical. So, the curator who is the scholars wh- the scholar, or several scholars who know about Busok, they can come with a suggestion. But if the director thinks that the Ministry of Culture will not like it, or that he doesn't like it, or that she doesn't like it, then it will be marginalized. Like in some place, there was a, a, a Busok a painting a very beautiful one, very centrally located. And I come the next year and I see suddenly something that looks like modern art. And I was asking the curator, well, that's a folklore museum. What does a modern art piece do here? And I said, well, the new director has her connections and interest. And, in, you know, our music piece went back to the storage room. Huh. So these things happen.
1: That's really fascinating. Yeah. And, it, and, and so, but it, it happens primarily along religious lines rather than sort of other political goals of sort of like modernizing states, for example, or things like that?
0: Both. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be religious. If we're a Christian, we don't want people to, you know, to see these obscene paintings of God and spirit. But it can also be political in a way because Korea wants to be portrayed as a hyper-modern technological society. And many people in Korea are afraid to talk about Manchin, and Musok, because even to me as a foreigner, like people would say, oh, you study Musok? Oh, yes, my grandmother used to do it, and they want technology to the, the recent activity, but then when I get to know them, and they kind of learn that they don't have any superstition or any stigma about it, suddenly I would hear that they had rituals, and so it, it's kind of something that's not very uh, common to talk about to foreigners, so if it's a museum that is for tourists, for foreign tourists, some directors would be worried that it would kind of portray Korea as primitive. And of course, you always have this post-colonial stance because Japanese colonizer, and we didn't get to talk about it, but the Japanese colonizer in the 19th and the 20th century, they tried to portray Korea as very background, uh, backwards and, and, uh, and kind of... Uh, undeveloped country. So they used, the Japanese, they used shamanism or busok as kind of a a marker of undeveloped society. Look at Korea, they are so superstitious. So never mind that Japanese people have similar (laughs) traditions, but they didn't talk about that. So so Koreans are very worried and, and wary not to portray themselves as a you know, backwards society or culture. And shamanism has this kind of stigma on it, generally, worldwide, right? People don't expect to find it in big cities. People don't expect it, the mansion to be, like when I tell people, oh, manshin, they have Twitter, they have Instagram accounts. They are very media connected. That would be the last chapter of the book, right? About internet, activity, and this is kind of old-fashioned already, because now they are on, on other new networks, like Instagram, that was not so common when I wrote the book. So so people are, what? She's on Instagram, but she's 60. Yes, but Korean man they're on Instagram when they're 72, you know? They, they don't, they're very on the cutting edge of technology, and, and people don't expect it. So Koreans know about it but you know not for foreigners
1: well maybe we should go to go there and come back to uh chapter four with television i mean since internet has been broached i mean so so presumably now there's live streaming as well which is perhaps a little bit more recent than than what you were writing about um but yeah can you talk a little bit about sort of this uh The internet promotion of Musul practitioners and how the internet helps to shape Korean uh, shamanism and its broader reception.
0: Yes, it's kind of funny. In the book, its the chronology goes from television to the digital, because that's the chronology of the medium. But in fact, shamans were much more active on the internet before television discovered them as protagonists of reality television and all that. Because, and that's why I put it in the book, and I think even though it's it's not so recent, it's not so updated, I, think the, I, I still think it's very important because in the mid-1990s, when internet was kind of a news, right? Even in Korea, not so many people knew what internet was. So at that time, two of the five main protagonists of the book, two of the the main shamans that I discussed, already had personal homepages in 1995, 1996. That's very early in world digital uh, promotion, and in Korea, because that's, that's just the moment before the government started uh, bringing internet to every home in Korea. So how come these people, they were in their 50s and 60s, at the time, how, how would they know about it, you know? How would they go about it? How did they produce this website? And and I discuss it in my chapter, because I, I interviewed them about it, and, and they said, we heard about it, and we thought it's very fascinating, and they actually brought in programmers to write in, you know, to, to, to get the platform because now they can go on, on Wix or WordPress, right? And they can put a website very easily and cheaply. But in the 1990s, they really had to be very, very updated to think about it and to get the programmer and to do it. And they did. So And they still have these websites, which now, of course, they are not interested because they have all these social media things and live streaming and everything you said. But these websites were very useful for them because it allowed for people to communicate with them anonymously. So if you're a Christian and you have a problem and somebody says, I know a shaman that can help you, but you're a Christian, how, how would you go into a shaman's house? Somebody might see you and tell your parents or something. So so they could communicate through the internet. So the anonymous uh, option of internet communication was very, very attractive to Manchin and their clients. And all the Manchin had in the website a kind of, um, how would you say, uh, a part where you could consult the Manchin, but in order to go into it, you would have to kind of um, get get a password and do it. So it was encrypted, so the, the mansion they really, in the beginning, you know, it's the early days where people didn't really understand if Internet is exposed or not. They already had these encrypted sections in their websites. And, and that's fascinating for me because it shows you how there are not these backward, analphabetic women who are kind of, you know, running like crazy in the field and saying the gods are speaking to them. They're not. They are very urban, they are very sophisticated, and the internet exemplifies it, especially in the 1990s. So people are surprised about it, but not Koreans. I mean, Koreans, they would Google it, them not in Google, but in their kind of neighbor or other uh, platforms, and they would find a mansion and go to her. So this organization that I mentioned with the 300,000 participants, they had a website in the 1990s already of the organization so, for example, you can click on a map where you live and you'll get a list of mansion that work in your region and all kind of this kind of nice thing that that for that time, it's very advanced and, you know, sophisticated. So, yeah.
1: It's interesting. It makes me it makes me sometimes feel like folklorists, where sometimes our marginality requires us to be sort of nimble footed in responding to or in and agile to use a sort of neoliberal term in responding to emergent phenomena and, 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 and the needs of uh, the various communities we serve. And it seems like maybe that's something similar going on with Dimension. I think that's really fascinating. There's sort of the need to be very uh, responsive to changing technologies. Um, but going backwards, or in, in some ways almost maybe contemporaneous, um, the, you have this backwards in the book, maybe contemporaneous or even, or even forwards in the historical narrative in some ways, uh, the final, uh, or the fourth chapter looks at television. So you've got, we, we, we've discussed stage and film and museum and internet, but you also have this chapter on television and you look at the portrayal of Manxin, in a variety of small screen programs, uh, historical and contemporary dramas, talk shows, reality TV, and more. Um, what is the place of mention in these programs, and, and how are they portrayed? And Do they have control over this portrayal in, in a way that maybe they don't in other media?
0: Yeah, it it's really fascinated me when I delved into it, because I'm not a very... Um, Small screen fan, I would say I wasn't at least. Uh, Now I have to because I watch all these things, and everybody send me the links to all these uh, shows that I write about. But then you know, it started with the field. I was, you know, I told you I was imagining that I'm going to see this extinct. Uh, this on the verge of extinction tradition, And then I go to a Manchin's house and then they're all watching a drama <laughs> where they're Manchin and they're criticizing. The Manchin and the apprentices are like, what? Look what they've done. That's not correct. That's not how it should be done. And that's how I kind of got to learn that there's television with Manchin because I wasn't watching Korean television. It wasn't part of my research and I wasn't such a television person at the time. So, so I kind of started watching shamans on television because the mansion were doing it and, and kind of discussing it among themselves. And then when they started with the social network, they started sending, you know, uploading these kind of uh, short parts of dramas or television shows. And of course, if they themselves are portrayed, they would put it in the social media and, and people would comment about it. And usually it would be, oh, you're so beautiful, you're impressive. And so that's when they are there and people comment. So there is some kind of interaction, which Manchin really liked in this medium, of digital medium. So that's a way to control like if you're shown somewhere. And and Manchin would would usually say publicity is always good, because they can always cut only the good part of what they've been shown and put that in the social media. So, So sometimes, yeah, some directors try to kind of distort or show them as whatever greedy, but it's very difficult with contemporary Manchin. So what I I observed when I started analyzing the different kind, I mean, there's so many. I chose just a few for the book. But when I started analyzing, I noticed there is very big difference between how my man are portrayed in historical dramas as mean, they can kill people, and they're always in for the money. And actually, when you go to contemporary drama, they're much more realistic to what I know. So really, I can't say how much in were two thousand years ago. Who can say? It's an oral tradition, and maybe it's true that they were killing people by their supernatural powers and something. But but that's not part of Korean Busa, uh, because and again, the word shamanism does a bad service because in some shamanic tradition there is all kind of harm causing mechanisms, so you can curse people. But I haven't met this kind of practices, I say it carefully because I'm sure they exist in some parts of Korean shamanism, but n- I have never encountered, and it's not something that's widely spoken. So there might be manshin that would do this kind of dark magic or black magic, or, you know, even in Tahiti, when we say voodoo and people think it's evil, most of, the, of this practice is not evil at all, you know? It's just what media likes to do. So So in Korea, it's very apparent that when they talk about old-time munching, they can portray them as evil, but when they talk about contemporary ones, they they don't. So actually, I think that even the directors and the public know that there's no, uh, the dark, evil, killing munching do not exist today. It's not rumored as much. I mean, there have been some rumors about munching causing damages to clients, but usually when it's researched by somebody, it, it turns out to be not a mansion, but something else. Because there's all kinds of new uh, practices, new religions, new Christians, all kinds of evangelist practices that sometimes are generally termed as shamanism. So again, shamanism is, is not a good word for that. And, and, and that's what I found interesting, that they could portray them like that because it was in old times and nobody knows. <laughs> so that's the folklore thing, you know? But even in folklore, you don't hear so much about bad shamans, like in oral folklore. It's not the common story. The, the story is about healing. The story is about an outcast person that, for example, a family decided she's like the last child. They don't want her. You know, the typical folklore. Uh, you know, we have these numbers for these <laughs> folklore stories. So, so she's an outcast. And she the famous story of Princess Pari, like the, the the father has only daughters, and when the last one is born, he's like, "I don't want another daughter. Go throw her away." She goes away. She goes to the underworld and she meets all the gods and spirits. And then when he's sick, she comes back and heals him, the father. So so that's a very typical folklore story, right? The last outcast comes back to save the country or the parents or something. So in Korea, that's a shaman in a very old folk story. Um, they're not evil, but in television drama, they can be if they're in the path
1: that's really fascinating um but as you said i mean at least with the more reality talk show type situations the shamans can at least control that a little bit more i guess i guess in a historical drama though they don't really have much say or are they consulted in these in those historical dramas at all or
0: (sighs) I can tell you that there is a very big chain that now is consulting one of the munching that I know, and I cannot disclose because I was uh, sworn not to disclose details. But there's supposed to be a, a series about munching that this particular Manchin is being um, hired, paid high, uh, hired, um, paid higher. How would you say that she would she's hired like actually as a job, not she's not volunteering for that. She's getting paid very nicely. And she would be a consultant about how Manchin do because they don't want to portray them. They want to portray them kind of honest to true. So they hired her. But I wouldn't think that many Manchin are hired. In some cases, you can see, for example, one of the practitioners that I know, you could see her in the background of a scene. So there was an actress doing stuff. But she was one of the, Older Manchin, but I guess that she was also, you know, corresponding with them and teaching because the song was exactly the song that she sings. So she was teaching the song to the actress, and the actress was doing it. But there is in the book also I discuss many other genres. So the reality show, she has a lot of control when a television crew is following her and, you know, following her life. There's like 24 hours, the camera that I discussed, a show where they follow somebody for 24 hours, and then they edit it for maybe one hour. So they actually show what she's showing them. Uh, she chooses what to show. She prepares the home, and and she shows herself in a best way. Uh, when they come to talk shows, to give blessing for the new, oh, to divine the new year, oh, I saw, uh, for example, uh, they're <laughs> a very very common before the New Year, they would bring a mansion to predict what will happen to very uh, various kinds of media celebrities, like, you know, all kind of uh, pop stars and stuff like that. So they would bring a mansion <laughs> to divine their future <laughs> on, la- on television, and, and that kind of brings a lot of publicity. But for the mansion, if they invite her to divine the future for whoever on television, that's kind of a legitimizing mechanism, right? Like so, Even if it's just for fun, but somebody thinks she's the person to bring to divine the future of this very, very famous pop star. So that, that makes her a celebrity. And then many people know her and she gets more clients. And of course, it's good for her economy. But it also brings the people with trouble. So, so most people won't go to the mansion if they don't have a problem. Why would they go there? No. They don't go for fun.
1: So. I mean, this is really interesting. And I think one thing that that conversation that we've had here does that maybe the book doesn't as much. Is it the the book has everything uh, you and I discussed this a little bit before pressing record the book does everything in sort of nice, easily digested chapters. But uh, in the process of this conversation, we've had this sort of cross cutting as I hit my microphone, cause I'm so animated. And they have this cross cutting of, uh, of, media and everything so it's not it's not as siloed it's not as neat as this it's sort of messier on the ground but i think i think that really comes across in everything you've said um we've taken up a lot of your time more than more than i usually try to do with people so thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time to discuss with us um before i let you go though i'm wondering if you could tell us what are you working on now what's the next project for you
0: yeah, I think you heard about it between the lines in this talk. <laughs> so the, the new project uh, about the uh, Korean shamans. Actually, it's not a new project. It was part of my dissertation research, but I never wrote about it extensively. I didn't feel confident enough to write about the actual practice. So mediation is kind of an easier ground to, to, to step when you're a folklorist, right, or representation. But now I'm, I'm writing about the actual practice and belief system and, and actually, it's something that, again, it's not new, but it's the new project. I'm trying to explain why I think that Korean busok practitioners are very hypermodern since pre-modern time. So I would say hypermodern in the way they are very interconnected, very uh, innovative, very flexible with identities either gender identities that we discussed or hierarchies. So in these respects, it's very hypermodern, like social mobility, all these issues that were kind of not existent in Korean society, pre-modern Korean society, they were there in the shamanic sphere. So I think both of practitioners were very, I don't like the word advanced because it kind of makes this linear line, but we use this word, right? They're very progressive. They're very liberal in their view of the world. So that's what I'm writing about, but uh, in particular, I write about how they view gender flexibility, which is not very common in Korean society, even in our time. I write about how they use material embodiments of affect of people, of interaction with the non-humans. You know, now we are in this non-human turn of whatever we study, anthropology or folklore. So they've been doing it forever, right? For them, objects are animated and have power, and they acknowledged it and used it forever. I think everybody did, but they by they did it very Professionally, it, it's their stuff. And, and being big on uh, performance, on uh, media, on being on stage, on drawing attention, on being even grotesque. It's not the only place where it existed because we have it in theater and other traditional you know, cultural performances in Korea and elsewhere. But it's very interesting how this entwines so nicely in the big city. So because my ethnography is in Seoul I don't go to the villages mostly. Uh, I always I always felt intrigued on how all this wo- all this kind of tradition works in the city and and I always read about how it adapted to the city and now I think actually the city is adapting to Korean musok. I mean musok has been there. They never cared about let's say gender boundaries. So now Koreans are slowly getting there about <laughs> gender boundaries, flexibility, but the, the Manchin have been there, and, and all kind of things. So that's the shamanism. And I must mention my other project, just to mention because I also do research about uh, a social movement and protest, the performance of protest and demonstrations in the city. It's a completely different project, and that's the book I'm writing now, actually. So if you see my name on protest, don't say, oh, but she does shamanism. No, she does protest too. And it works together. It's all about being in on stage, right? So
1: absolutely. I yeah. think I mean it sounds both projects sound really fascinating and I can't can't wait to uh, see the books and the articles as they come out. Um, Dr. Sarfati, thank you so much for your time today. And this is a really fun conversation. Uh, the book again is Contemporary Korean Shamanism from Ritual to Digital from Indiana University Press. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. It's been very stimulating to talk about my book.